Purposely Podcast, speaking with social entrepreneurs and charity founders and leaders, people who are making the world a better place. Here's your host, Mark Longbottom. A really warm welcome to episode 17 of Purposely Podcast. I have the absolute pleasure of interviewing Benny Resson, founder of Place to Be. I've known Benny for almost a decade. She is an absolute powerhouse of the charity sector. She has a, a strong belief that therapy or therapeutic relationships could help traumatize children uh, and place to be do exactly that. They created a place to be in schools, particularly low decile schools, uh, and they've had huge impact on the sector. I think you'll enjoy this episode. Benita Reston, who joins me. Um, from the UK. I'm sitting in Auckland. She's sitting in London. Welcome, Benny. Well, I mean, thank you and uh, good to speak to you. You too. And, you know, I you were an OB at one, OBE at one point, but you've, you became a dame. Do, how, when people say dame, Benny Refson, do you flinch? Are you used to it? How, how does it feel to be a dame? Um... <laughs> a good question because when I got the letter I went first and said no 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 not me um, because it was never something that I was looking for I just wanted to do what I was doing well I didn't I, I really don't need public recognition uh, but it's interesting how it it I think it was great for the organization um, and I think it has people felt that it was uh, that it put mental health on the agenda which is good children's mental health but as far as it goes for me, I very rarely use it publicly. Yeah. Um, uh, so, uh, yeah, it, it wasn't something I sought. I didn't go into what I did for public recognition. I, I, I do what I do because I hope I can make a difference. But there yeah. we go. My children, my grandchildren, love coming to the palace. I bet they do. And if we're and yeah, if we're yeah. if we're in a lift, and you had a couple of minutes to explain to me what place to be is all about. What would be the what would be your pitch? How would you describe it? Uh, can I do a, do a pre, pre precursor Go to that one and say that when I first started the place to be and I used to I used to do the the elevator pitch, people would look at me blankly and say, "What on earth is that?" In today's world, it's so much more simple. Place to be is a mental health charity that's based in schools, providing support therapeutic support to children and their parents and their teachers and the wider community. That's my elevator pitch. Fantastic. And your role has changed over the years. So you are a, a, you founded the charity uh, and it's almost, it's well, it's, it's heading towards, we'll just say 30 years, but, but not quite um, old. And what's your role there now? And, and I know you've been, um, you know, stepping away slightly in terms of the day-to-day managing staff, but what? Yeah, what's your current role? Uh, well, I've got the official role of president, but I actually think that my current role is is very limited because I'm I chose no longer to be a trustee, so I'm not involved in the day-to-day running. What I think has happened to, for me is that I'm I'm now able to use my experience and understanding of mental health um, and apply it in the other roles that I have. Um, so, for example, I'm a, I'm a trustee of an organization called Forward, which used to be called RAPT, Rehabilitation of Addicted Prisoners. So I go into prisons and uh, listen to men and women who have had traumatic childhoods and clearly have mental health issues 
that were not addressed when they were in school? And that's always a question I say, did you get the support you needed when you were in school? And the answer is almost 100% never. And then I'm also a governor of the Bridge Academy, which is in Hackney. So with, with the experience of um, setting up the place to be and working as a chief executive until six years ago, then a trustee, I think I'm able to use that experience and apply it in other contexts. Fantastic. And I had it down as you were um, told by your father to, you know, looking back at your early years, told by your father to leave school to do something practical. Is, is that truthful? Oh, yes. Well, I mean, I was born in 1947, which is 100 years ago, or it was to be 70, 73 <laughs> to be precise. And my father said, um, whatever you do, you need a basic skill. And so I did a, um, a year's secretarial course back in 1965, um, 1966. And that actually has been very useful because I know how to type. Sadly, I lost my ability to do shorthand. Um, but that was a basic skill. And that, that um, he said, whatever you, ha- whatever you do, you have to be able to earn a living. Um, I wasn't very good at that, actually. Um, I, I, my first job, I always wanted to go into the medical profession. So my first job was as the PA to the head of the School of Nursing at St. George's Hospital. And um, they liked me enormously, but that I would never be a very good secretary. And so my father was disbelieving and I went to work for him for a few weeks and he absolutely agreed with St. George's Hospital. And then um, my brother uh, said, come and work for me. And his view was the same. And I actually um, was very friendly with somebody who was trained to be a neurosurgeon. who said that I need to do something useful and worthwhile in my life? What was I interested in? And I thought, okay, I will volunteer for a, for a welfare organization, um, which I did. And uh, the interviewed the person who was interviewing me took me through a door that said psychiatric social work, um, which I had very little understanding about. And I loved it. So for two years, I was training to be a psychiatric social work uh, and my clients were adults with mental health uh, issues. And now I look back and it clearly traumatized from the war because many of them were immigrants. And uh, I was young and didn't have enough life experience to continue. But during my induction there, uh, I went to a home for uh, people with, with learning difficulties from very severe to much less severe. And I was quite shocked by what I saw initially. And then the third area that I went to, um, feeling quite traumatized by what I'd seen, um, something touched me and I flinched. And the little girl said, I'm so sorry, I frightened you. And she was small, wearing a tartan dress with a white collar. And I was so, I was mortified that she was aware that she frightened me. And I've always remembered her and what she looked like. And I think that was very much the foundation stone for what I went on to do much later. Mm, yeah, really interesting. And cause what, so what year was this and how old were you? Right. So um, I started my training in 1968. So I was, no, I started my training in 1966 and I was 19. 19 and you had you were co- conscious that you were too young and, and it was sort of too traumatizing for you as well as that's the sort of the feeling you had um, at the time 
I yes, because they were adults, um, and I just didn't have a life enough life experience and resilience within myself to be able to continue. Um, it, it felt quite overwhelming, and I just knew that I wasn't at the right stage in my life to be able to continue to to continue training and to continue developing. I needed to take some time out, but always thought that later on in my life, I would go back to it. And plan, I have down as plan C, which um, your career takes a bit of a a wild turn at this point, doesn't it? So you end up as, I you down as a runner for Vogue. um, So very much in the the fashion sector. Yes, running was probably a good idea. To call it that, I went along. My, my, I had a cousin who said, "Well, what would you like to do?" And I said, "I have no idea." And I threw the idea of fashion out. And so she said, "Right, okay, then send letters to every single fashion magazine," uh, which I did. And to my absolute amazement, um, the head of human resources from Vogue contacted me, and along I went and was uh, offered a job as fashion assistant, in and which I, which wasn't in my in my even my thinking and it was terrific I had a wonderful boss called Sheila Wetton um, it was a completely different experience it had a huge impact my whole view of fashion and design and that world changed I loved it um, and so I was there until 1971 and and she had a slogan didn't she um, I am what I am which you took and, and lived by is that right totally she was a very leading model in the thirties, and um, she had a very she had wonderful grey hair that she wore back in a bun, and wonderful cat eyes and loads of wrinkles. And, and there was another fashion editor there who had um, um, and used surgery to enhance uh, her her the way she looked. And my and Sheila always said, "I am who I am, and I will grow up." being who I am and that's always stayed with me because however much one looks in the mirror and thinks oh I wish I looked differently the actual actually what we are is what we seem to be and so uh, I've always lived by her rule and hoped that I had the courage to be who I was uh, as as life took its its toll or yeah, played its part. Great great advice to live by and what just because standing out and, and getting the opportunity in the, you know amongst others, what what did you stand out for? Do you think you know in that letter or that interview? Why did they hire you? Do you think? I have no idea. I do know that when I was marched along the corridor um, to my to be a boss, um, she looked at me and said, "What on earth are you?" Uh, because I I wasn't in the mold of at that stage in the mold of Vogue at all. Um, I don't know. Maybe, maybe they thought I had the capacity to be useful. Um, I, as you said, I carried, I carried a lot of things, and I was ready to do all of that, and I didn't mind. And I think that taught me you have to start somewhere, and the bottom is probably a good place to start. I never had the idea that I needed to start at some, at some higher level, and I was thrilled to be able to. My father always used to say, in order to understand a trade, you've got to start from the shop floor. And I suppose that's what they might have seen in me, that I was prepared to carry and lug and do whatever was necessary as a fashion assistant. And indeed, I did very lots of heavy suitcases and clothes and, and loved every minute of it. Yeah, I think that 
um, good attitude and passion and willingness to do whatever, those three things combined could be, you know, hugely advantageous and take you places, can't they? Absolutely. I think it's really important. And I, I look at young people who are coming out of university. And in fact, we had a discussion with our with our 17-year-old granddaughter the other day and our 18-year-old grandson, who at the moment is um, he decided to take a gap year, which sadly the gap year wasn't hasn't uh, hasn't ended up as he expected because of COVID. Um, but he's had the courage to become to work in a market twice a week. We think that's brilliant. He's prepared to carry. It's he's on a vegetable stall actually, um, and he's prepared to do that. And and our message to him is, brother. take a short pause in the episode we now move towards Benny's startup story this place to be and I think why place to be is a success is because it's super child focused and child centered enjoy the next section um a different kind of life and and you got married and and you this is heading towards your 30s and and I understand that you had three children I do. I have three children, and one today is a psychotherapist, one is an A&E consultant, and one is a writer. And they, in turn, two of them have, uh, I have six grandchildren as well. And so uh, they went on to, to uh, thank goodness, um, have a work ethic and have be curious about the world that they live in. And so I often sigh, um, a big sigh of relief that somehow they've, they've had that uh, that they've had that drive and that curiosity and that energy to go out and do something they love. Yeah, fantastic. And you, and during that time, did you you retrained or you had you you started uh, counselor training? Is that right? Yes, I thought uh, w- when uh, they were late teens and my son was thirteen, I thought I would look at um, training as a psychiatric social worker which is something I always wanted to go back to but that world had changed significantly so my current my husband um my current husband said uh why don't you train um as a counselor or a therapist and I thought that absolutely not because my my view in those days and this is a long time ago this is 1990 my view of therapy was um was very different. I had very little understanding of it and I didn't realize the real strength. I, my view was analysis, long-term Woody Allen type, someone on a, on a couch and that someone listening. And uh, that wasn't something I saw myself particularly excited by. But when I started training or dipping my toe into it to see whether I was interested and I did some art therapy, some straightforward counseling, some drama therapy during that first year, I actually thought, there's nothing really that mysterious about it. It's about relationships. And that's even more important today. You know, how do we relate to the world that we live in? How do we relate to ourselves? How do we engage in relationships that are meaningful? And how do we get out of some of the unhealthy patterns, which means that our relationship, our history, our experience of relationships uh, has been negative. So I was fascinated when I finished my year and decided to go on and train but never, ever wanted to be a counsellor for adults, possibly because I didn't feel that I had the, um, maybe the experience to do it. But also because my children were adolescents, I really thought, and I know how challenging 
that period is is for so many, um, I decided that I would work with that age group. And that's what I did. I went on to be a counsellor at University College and at, at a youth agency in Wandsworth. And uh, when I had these young people in front of me, I just thought it was so too late. It needed some... The way they were living their experiences was a result of something in their childhood. And I thought if only they could be reached sooner rather than later, perhaps we could make a long-term difference to their futures. Mm-hmm. And you're... Because I had a, a similar experience, actually. So in terms of uh, quite a bit later, but similar experience in the sense that I, you know, decided that I wanted to be a psychotherapist. And I actually got some really good sound advice on reflection, which is, um, Mark, don't be silly. Go and get some life experience. Um, I think I was attracted by the idea of uh, kind of talking therapy, but the the relationship helping people to, you know, rethink their lives um and their trauma um for you you know you you decide quite quickly that it wasn't um going to be focused on adults um so you're you're and you've you've been at um university college was that right and you got involved in this this, um project in in wandsworth and if you don't mind me saying but you you, you're well educated you're incredibly well spoken um you end up in wandsworth which is uh, is now but probably back then quite a tough part of London um, was it a huge shock to you were they shocked by you what, what was what was that experience like because you kind of uh, got two a, things that, that, yeah that's a very good question Mark because actually one of my first clients in it was the ones with youth agency uh, and it wasn't a very grand area at all one of them uh, he was a, he was a very tall young man who had broken every rule in the book and you could just see that his life was going down a disastrous route and halfway through my session he said you remind me of a <laughs> social worker and walked out uh, and I learned a lot from that because yes you're absolutely right um, I have I'm middle class I'm white um, and people will have uh, will have perceived ideas of where I come from and what I might understand so, but that taught me a lot because um, I had it made me terribly aware of how I might be seen by so many, um, particularly those who are living in a very different world to mine. And I hope, and indeed I think it did, make me more empathic and more understanding. And this is way back um, in the 91, 92. Um, and then as well, when I set up the place to be, I, I, I do think that it helped me understand that we, we, live, we live in a culturally diverse, very rich world and that we, are, we, we need to concentrate on how we all feel part of it as opposed to separated from it. Mm, yeah. And, you know, um, sort of vogue to the street is um, big. You definitely had that built-in passion for this work um, and, you know, you didn't, you, you kept following it through. I mean, and also I think reflecting on that, because I, I arrived in, in the UK for the first time, sort of late 80s, and, and Britain was a tough place back then, wasn't it? So it was in a, a real downturn economically, the sort of negative equity. Um, there, there were social problems um, left, right and centre. Um, do, do you have kind of memories of it being tough then, or, or have you sort of blocked that out? Um, no, I haven't. Um, I, I think it's important 
to bear in mind that my grandparents were refugees. Back in the 1903, it sounds like, well, it is hundreds, a long time ago. And I was brought up in a world where not everyone was successful. And many members of my family and my friends and my my parents group were not fortunate. So, and when I was young, my mother used to take me down to the east end of London to see her aunt. So I was aware of poverty and diversity and difference and... And I suppose that's always stayed with me. Mm. So uh, the 80s were one thing, but I remember going down to um, the school where I eventually was my first school in, in Peckham. And I had no idea where Peckham was and uh, couldn't read a map well, didn't have a mobile, uh, didn't have a sat nav, got completely lost. Um, my car got broken into. And yeah, I was nervous when I walked into that school because it was a completely different environment. Um But at the same time, I felt that I had enough history in my family to understand that we live in a very different world, in diverse worlds. And I hope it led to me understanding that. Yeah. And just what country did they, were they refugees from? Uh, From Russia. And do you feel connected to that culture or that that place at all? Or is it in the depths of your family? It's interesting because I suppose as I get older, I feel more and more connected because I think, what was it like for my grandparents? They were 23, 24. Um, they came over and my parents never talked about it. And I, I never met. I only met one grandparent. Um, but as I get older, I think, my goodness, how did they manage it? They left their family. They left their roots. They had no money. Um, and they lived in the East End of London. And they had the courage to develop and grow. And interestingly enough, every one of my family thought that education was important. So I, as I get older, I have huge respect, not necessarily for the culture of the country, but for the courage um, that that whole generation and my parents' generation had. It was terrific and I admire that more and more as I get older. Mm. And do you think that spark that determination that you have do you, you see those traits on, from, from that early part of your family um, and you know because you've, you've achieved a lot in your life which we're going to go on to in a minute what, what, um, what happened next on the, on the story so you've got this project and um, I, I sort of have it down as, as you playing a fundamental role in developing and, and ensuring that it's it, uh, becomes something more substantial in scales. Would that, would that be fair? Uh, do you mean place to be? Yeah, in terms of the launch of place to be, exactly. Okay. So um, I went down there and, and to the school and saw that, um, that, that um, the Family Service Unit had placed a, a counsellor in the school funded by BBC Children in Need. And I thought... Actually, what a, what an interesting idea! What a, what a useful and positive way of, of bringing help to children in a non-stigmatized setting. And instead of children having to leave school, going for it, it was where the children were. So I took down three people. I took down a child magistrate, and and asked them whether they thought it was a useful idea. They did. I took down somebody called Dr. Lorraine Share, who is in charge of research at the Royal Free, who said if, we, if I did anything that um, it needed to have research embedded in its very fabric. And then I took down 
my husband, who's part of the foundation. And I thought, actually, they would all recommend uh, supporting this other organization. And to my amazement, they said, ah, good idea. Why don't you set it up as a separate charity? And I have to say that I knew nothing about how to do that. But those were three people who I have enormous respect for. And because they somehow believed in me, um, I, I had to do it in a way. Mm. And I was very, very fortunate. I had a lot of people around me, lawyers and people in business and, and, um, and, and therapists and counselors. And, and they all encouraged me and helped me. Yeah. And, 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 and in, yes, that was important. And you saw, so I'm interested in the name because I think, you know, for me, it's everyone needs a place to be. And I know that um, you're going to talk about what, you know, a bit more about what the charity did, did then and does now. Um, but you also have talked, I've seen, I've seen stuff you've, you've talked about in terms of you saw anger everywhere. So you saw the effects of anger um, and the sort of trauma of anger and how it could damage a child's life. Is that kind of early inspiration? Would that be fair? Um well, I, certainly my, the clients that I saw in Wandsworth in the youth agency, they were really angry. Um, and then the students that I saw at University College, um, much of the, many of them came with eating disorders and depression. And for me, that was because they were angry at the world or had early childhood trauma. So I wouldn't say that I was particularly aware of the anger element, um, but I began to be aware of the fact that early childhood trauma um, has a very uh, long-term effect on our psyche and the way we live our world. But I'm, I think I'm talking about that today from a much more informed position. I, I'm not sure that I had that knowledge 28 years ago. I think that today we're, we're far more aware of the impact of early childhood trauma. So I don't think I articulated it that clearly then. I just had a gut sense that we're, we have to make a difference to the way children perceive their lives and the world around them. And also I was shocked by the number of children who had witnessed domestic violence. So that, that is, is maybe what you're talking about, that they lived in, they lived in conflict and living within, with conflict, as we know today, because of COVID, has a disastrous effect on our psyche in the way we, and the way we manage ourselves and our relationships. Because th- it was quite innovative at the time what you were doing because not a lot of agencies or charities were, ki- from, from, for me, were connecting, um, you know, trauma uh, to, to psychological damage and then how that manifested to behaviour. Um, would, that, would that be fair? You guys were innovative? Would that be? An, I, think, an, I think we, I, yes, I think that's absolutely right. I think we were. I remember going to, when, when we started our expansion program in 1999 we were working in in uh and uh i remember one of the teachers saying that they'd discovered that two of the children in their year in their in their school were hiding in the cupboard under the stairs while their parents were um having an argument which was clearly violent and i was shocked by how that, how they must have experienced that fear, um, and so there were so many of the stories that I heard um, had an impact on the way I viewed the future of the place to be, 
and also the way that we needed to develop because we we live in an ever-changing world and we forget that every the, the adults have a child in their world and we think well the adults can't live at, at peacefully or uh, in their with their own experience so what it what must it be like for a child to experience what the adult is experiencing and we often forget that it has an impact on their psyche mm. hope you enjoyed the episode this next section focuses on learnings benny Refson, the leader founder syndrome how she handed over how she coped with that her principles her ethics her morals some really good stuff coming up and we also talk a little bit about covid enjoy for you was the, was there an opposition from the sector because you guys are coming along with a different narrative and you're talking about children and trauma and then behaviour. Did you find people pushing back in the sector? Um, well, it, it's interesting because as a not-for-profit voluntary organisation, um, there were different reactions. When I used to present to, if I, if I think about the very early days when I used to present to local authorities, then that, that was the reason why we worked with clusters of schools. When we started our expansion programme in 1999, which was, we, we, were, we found it as a charity in 1994. So our major expansion programme, 1999, went to uh, actually Brenton, New Addington. But in those days, it was, and still is, incredibly important to engage and be partners with the local authority. And so when I used to go along to present, I would always see um, some people bristle in the audience. And uh, I learnt that they were probably in those days, and probably rightly so, members of a child and adolescent mental health services, clearly thinking, you know, who is this woman coming along with, um, a, a voluntary organization saying that they can do what we what we know we can do so there was suspicion and an understandable suspicion on their behalf and then so that was that was the uh, statutory authorities and i realized how important it was to work very closely and to to work collaboratively collaboration is really key um in in what in the work in any of the work that i'm involved in um, and then as far as funders were concerned, um, the, so we're going back now, 94, 95, 96, 97, uh, I, if I was ever asked what I did, I, you could see the sort of the listener glaze over and think, well, these are just naughty children. What are, you know, this is very, this feels like sandals and candle stuff. And not many people really um, engage with the idea. Uh, but then as the evidence and, and research was embedded in everything we did as the evidence came about that it was making a difference to children and their families then people started to look at it and rightly and totally understandable that the people initially are suspicious mm. of anything that individuals set up yeah and at this point it's it was a designated space place to be within a school a therapeutic setting you had volunteer counselors operating in the school and this is like this is kind of something from the moon right this is completely this didn't exist in schools is is that the right picture i've just painted there yeah so there was a designated room in each school uh 
and in each school there was a qualified clinician, a, then called a school project manager, and still is called a school project manager, a qualified clinician uh, with experience who was based at that school, who also worked with a team of counsellors on placement. Because when, for instance, I was training, the most difficult thing to do was to find a well-supervised, well-structured placement, which is what you need to become a qualified counsellor or therapist. And so I saw that we had a wonderful opportunity to provide training, um, a training opportunity for counsellors. And part of that was to develop the workforce. What was really important was to ensure that those counsellors on placement received supervision every day. This is a side of charity. So you've pulled together, as you said, um, people in the statutory sector, but you also engage um, a number of funders, and that was crucial to the growth of Place to Be and a sort of scaling of it. Um, what, what are your fundamentals on, A, do you admit to being a good fundraiser, and B, why were you good and what were the principles that you live by? Um, I, I never ever saw myself as a fundraiser. I saw myself as someone who raised funds for uh, a work that I was passionate about. Um, I now look back and I actually told my granddaughter that you can see that I'm not very IT literate, but um, I didn't even know how to use a computer back in 1994 when I started writing my first applications. And I look back now and think, gosh, they were really poor. Um, so I think, first of all, I come from a business background. And so I, I absolutely acknowledge the importance of transparency, effectiveness, and, and, uh, and financial controls. Really, really important. And so I never encouraged the organization to expand unless we had a very firm footing in terms of financial controls and income. So that is really key. And then as well, it was important to show that we had an impact so that we could actually quantify the, the, the impact that we had on young people, on children's lives. And that also we were providing a service that was economically sound and had value. And so I think if, you t if we take all of that, did that make me a fundraiser? Well, it, it certainly made me someone who, who could raise funds but I think what people saw in me um, was somebody who was totally transparent. And when we didn't achieve something <clears throat> and we didn't achieve the goal that we'd set out in maybe an application, we were honest enough to say that. But there would have been a reason why. And I yeah. just think it's so important, people who work in any business and the not-for-profit especially, is to be completely transparent and to be really cautious about how money is spent. It's yeah. jolly well. It's hard-earned. And people who are giving money um, are hoping to see results. And I have to say here that I, I, um, was, I didn't take a salary for the, the, for the 20 years that I was um, chief executive. Mm. Um, and I, can, I remember my mother saying, well, I can't be doing anything of any value if I wasn't paid. But actually, what that did was make me a donor. Um, and therefore, it made me even more uh, aware of the importance of developing a an organization that was providing the funders with what they hoped they would see but also the children with what we were providing yeah and you were and at that point you were living off your husband's income in terms of bringing money into the house is that how you were able I, to I, do that I, I was yes i was able to um i was able to support myself which was and i was very fortunate in that sense
yeah and you know quite different or quite um new at the time was that sort of um proving based on a business case so you're you know um donate three three pounds to place to be and 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 mm. save save society ten pounds or you know one of the formulas which I, there wasn't really any others doing that at that time and that's become more common that sort of you know you um evidence based on economic input impact did that came from your um using your business brain or your making sense of the world through your business brain well i i think that's probably right um we, we, I think we were the, one of the first to embed research um, into what we did uh, because I knew that I didn't know what I was doing. That was an impression. And therefore, if I didn't know what I was doing, I had, to, <clears throat> I had to see whether we were having an impact, a positive impact on the lives of those that we were working with. And also, I, I needed to know that it was value for money. Um, and therefore... Uh, new philanthropy capital helped us look at uh, unit costs. And I think that's really key to the future of any organization. Because mm. they were an um, innovative voice at the time or a fresh voice, weren't they, in the sector? So they were, they came along, they were. Um, came along from two, two founders of MPC, New Philanthropy Capital, who said, actually, it's not enough just to measure outputs. You, you know, you need to be able to measure or prove what impact you have on people's lives and that really changed the shape of charity in the uk i think and probably globally uh from other people um but that that's a that's a really good uh thing isn't that i think it's uh, for any organization oh, ab absolutely I, uh, absolutely i i my view is no one should give to um, any organization, be it not for profit or for profit, without really doing their due diligence. And whenever I presented to, and maybe I did that with you as well, Mark, whenever I presented the work, I would actually invite due diligence and inquiry into the work, because that was something that, that helped us understand and learn about ourselves as well. And so many times I can think of one particular foundation um, who was, it was so hard to get their grant because they would send endless questions. But actually, because all those questions encourage us to think why, what, where, who. And, and so uh, I think that it, it's, it's important that people who, uh, philanthropic people, who are supporting organizations, they, that they know where their money is going and how it's spent. And whether it's making a difference, I think it's absolutely crucial. Yeah, and just to reflect on you as a, a leader during this time, so I think were you because you know my, my kind of big lesson in life actually is no, there's no one's good at everything, and they're not completely rounded. Um, and if you know if a, if a leader's good at people stuff, sometimes they're not good at, at the financial stuff. What, how, how would you you've always given us a hint of of kind of um beneath the rest and the leader but where did where did you struggle where did you excel um and how did you deal with those things that you weren't so good at i think my greatest my greatest achievement was recognizing that i didn't know an awful lot um 
And very early on, when I used to struggle to find answers, I thought, no, I don't have to find the answers. I just have to know what the questions are. So I was very, very fortunate. I had a terrific chairman, excellent trustees. I had colleagues who were working with me. And and if if we needed, no, not if we, when we needed an answer, when we would go to, I would go to whichever trustee, whichever colleague had the experience. I don't think any leader can think that they have all the answers. I think that's when we fail. I think if one is going to be a good leader, one has to actually invite um, critical comment and invite people's views so that we can grow and learn. I think any leader that feels that they have all the answers is not going to build an organization that is open, transparent, and successful. So asking questions, admitting that we don't have the answers, um, wanting, being curious, wanting to improve, knowing that it, it, an organization can never be static, but importantly, the relationships with the people that work with us. That's also incredibly important. Because mm. I think in, in the charity sector, you're, you're a, as a leader, you're, you can be very accountable. It's a very public forum. You know, each year you publish your accounts um, that is accessible to anyone who wants to have a look at them. Um, you know, the, to, I, I think what a lot of leaders um, struggle with is that trustee boards, they are voluntary, they are part-time, uh, people come from different sectors, and sometimes the cycle of a board means you're starting again, building those relationships. Um, mm. You know, and I think one of the crucial things of being a leader in our sector, and you're, I'm sure you weren't too sensitive, but not being too sensitive um, and you know, not being too defensive either, just you know, like, um, and, and, you know, you've shown great, uh, success as a leader and, and, um, you've la it lasted for a long time. One of the other commonalities of my interview so far is this sort of term around founder syndrome. Uh, and it's, you know, when you are so passionate, you didn't draw a salary, you did it purely for passion and love for, and what you were doing and the impact that you're making. Um, but heading towards letting go to the day-to-day, -day, just tell us a bit about that and, and was that difficult? Well, um, the, the founder syndrome is a really important thing to address and, and I was aware of it from day one uh, because my husband had worked uh, with the voluntary sector and had seen several organisations fail because of the founder syndrome. So when it came to a moment in time, um, and it came towards a moment in time, I realized that it's like having a child. You have to let the child go. And it's really important that, that you have laid the foundation stones for the child to grow up as an independent, as an independent person. And so there was a moment in time when it, it became clear that I needed to think that way. And my then chairman and my husband were very clever and said, okay, look at other things that you can do. So I became a trustee of the Forward Trust. I became a, a, a governor of an academy. And so I transitioned out of that role into another role. And you're absolutely right. Um, organizations uh, find it quite difficult to, um, to think about a founder still being involved. But I'm very... Um, I think it's really important that organizational history uh, remains somewhere because otherwise organizations are reinventing the wheel and wasting time. 
And I think it's important that that organizational history is alive somehow in the hands of someone so that they realize, the organization realized done that, didn't work, or will do that, and it did work. So um, I'm a great advocate for um, histories remaining alive. Yeah. Without it. And, and I think that executives, I think the, 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 I really respected my board of trustees because they challenged me and my husband challenged me and my children challenged me. And I think that's, that's really important. I didn't, I didn't want to have a board that was just nodding. Um, and I think that there are boards who are frightened of their chief executives and their executives and uh, don't challenge. And I think that's when organizations begin to fail. Mm. I think it's really important to challenge. Yeah, yeah, I and, think and any and very and, and mature, resilient executives will will invite that because they will want to grow too. Yeah, and was there any pang of kind of regret or or you know you've got were you involved in the recruitment of of this your successor? Uh, my successor was in fact uh, my chief operating officer before, and so yes, we we were involved in her appointment. Um, and uh, it's probably been quite difficult for her to to uh, take over as the leader, and ha- has a has her own leadership style. And uh, I think it's been quite important that I've stepped away um, more and more over the period of time, so that the executives and the trustees can develop their own organisation. Yeah, yeah, moving a bit away from that but to one of those kind of moments in life that we all kind of, I think certainly live in the UK. We all remember where we were uh, this particular day in 2017 when um, Grenfell tower, North Kensington um, caught fire in the early morning. And I remember waking up, I was living in Bristol, waking up in the morning and just seeing this horrendous tower fire. Um, do you remember you were that day and could you just kind of outline what place to be's role and in, in, in that recovery for those people? I, rem- I remember exactly where I was. I was in Switzerland. My, my, my husband had a board meeting and I went with him and I actually had CNN on and, and saw the fire. And uh, we, uh, the place we worked in and still does in Kensington Aldridge Academy, which was just where the fire was happening. And so we immediately went into uh, in in we immediately thought what could we do, and so we developed a whole strategic plan, organisational plan of how to support the the children and the families in whichever schools, um, and it was a really important development because we realised we weren't in me- many of the schools but we were in Kensington Aldridge, uh, and we we actively continued to support children and the families it was um it's a good example mark to have brought up because it showed that one has to be able to think uh how can you actually have an impact on a community that is traumatized and it's not just at that point of the trauma but it's the ongoing trauma that's really important to to hold in mind and also it's really important to think about the professionals working within the organization so for instance the place to be in the therapists that were listening to the very, very real fears and traumas of the children and families that we were working with, but also the the teachers who were living with that. 
So that's a, yes, I remember it very well. Mm, very very traumatic. It was, and for those people who don't know so much about it, it was a state housing, a, a large tower in um, North Kensington in London, uh, and sadly, uh, seventy one people died that day um or, or soon after and but hundreds more were um traumatized homeless for a bit um yeah and it, it, it just the visual um ness of it itched on on my brain and and great to see place to be responding so quickly and i remember at the time actually there was a there was um the british red cross ran an appeal and i was thinking god when was the last time British Red Cross run an appeal for a domestic, um, you know, a, a disaster. Um, but actually, here we are in 2020, and um, you know, global pandemic has hit, and the world feels like a very different place. And um, I know, you know, the sector, the charity sector, has been, you know, kind of ripped apart by loss of income and also a lot of damaged people what's what's the kind of effect uh on place to be and then it'd be good just to hear from your your how you've found it as well as a, as a you know as a human as your family but yeah what a place to be uh what's it stopped what's it started so um i'm gonna i'm gonna speak from my my governor's hat actually um because the amount of work and dedication that the teachers and the schools have applied to support their communities during this has been just phenomenal, utterly phenomenal. Um, and so as the place to be works within schools and we work with schools, um, each school had its own way of approaching their communities, their children, their students. And, and, and again, it depends whether it was primary or secondary school. And so they used all sorts of different approaches as they couldn't be there within the school. They would use telephone call-ins, etc. I think the, one of the benefits of this is that um, we were not just the place to be, but other organizations were able to use technology to engage. I know that somebody who I'm very close to is using FaceTime with young people so they feel connected. And there are others who think, well, there's child protection issues, so maybe it's not so good. But I think that what it's made people think about is the different ways in which one can reach the communities where you work. And so it's forcing people to think out of the box, which is a good thing um, because we are in a changing world. Uh, however, having said that, I think that what we all need is the is the experience of having uh, a lived experience, so a relationship with an uh, with another human being, and not just on the on the phone or FaceTime. So, uh, working in primary and secondary schools hopefully will mean that we can get back again into into that uh, relationship. It's difficult because there are schools that are opening and closing and children living in bubbles. It's really complicated, but it's complicated <clears throat> for the place to be. But it's also very complicated for the schools. And that's the world that we live in. And so we have to manage that uncertainty. But we also have to be terribly aware of the, the impact of, uh, of, on the mental health. And I know that we're hearing about it all the time, uh, the impact of COVID and people's mental health. But actually, the World Health Organization 
um, way back, three or four years ago, mentioned, could be longer, mentioned that by 2030, um, the, 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 uh, the leading disease would be mental health. And that's extraordinary, isn't it? It was already on the, on the cards that mental health would be the, the single most important disease in, by 2030. So um, it, it's just getting worse. And it was getting worse anyway, because we're so uncertain about where, where the world is, what the world needs, what we are, who we are in the world. So in, in a way, uh, it's, it's not just about COVID. It's about the world that we live in today. And maybe what ha is happening today because of COVID, we're all thinking about it. And I hope so. I, I know that my grandchildren yeah. are thinking about the world in a different way been great to to chat and as we move towards um wrapping up i just wanted to um get get your thoughts on really the future of the sector so you know the sort of charity as a charity for you model broken you know grants fu grant funding reliance on grant funding um events that quite transactional fundraising what you know what what were you advising pace to be to go in terms of sustainability or the or uh, su survival probably at the moment with covid but um yeah what what are your views on that well what i would about advise the future of the sector I, right what i would advise any any organization be it not for profit be it is to look at core costs um i think it's really important that we provide value for money i also think there are a lot of charities out there and so from a very personal position and not necessarily anything to do with the place to be, I just think that we have the opportunity to merge many organizations uh, because I think we could save a lot of money by doing that. And I think that um, merging, collaboration, cutting core costs, ensuring the viability and the economic cost model is really important. And some organizations are not very good at that. And, and I think that will that will uh, become even more transparent and obvious as time goes on, because there there are so many areas of need, not just children's mental health, but the arts, um, and all and the hospitality sector, etc. I think that we just have to recognise that we are in a different world, and that so many different areas are needing support. Funders will look at the areas where they can make the have the biggest impact, and if organisations can't demonstrate that 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 that's what they're doing, and that they are value for money, then I think that there are some organisations and 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 charities that won't survive. But I do ask funders to be very diligent and really inquire into um, costs and core costs and and the financial model i think it's really important mm. and I, I think mergers and acquisitions i like to call it so i was involved in i was at terence higgins trust when we merged with london lighthouse and that was managed really well but it, and it made a lot of sense economically i think it's it's, a, it's vital that egos get laid down and as as well as logos and and actually um you know the focus should be that the end user or the where the impact's going to be placed um and i think you could play a, a really good vital role in in that work um because i think charities often need a platform and charity and charity trustees need to feel 
empowered to bring that up in discussion or even touch on that subject uh not not easy stuff right it's not easy stuff but as you just said it's today there's no there's no place for egos um or logos i like what you just said uh it, it really is if we really believe in what we're doing and if we really want to genuinely make a difference to the world that we live in there's no place for the egos and and it's not about us it's about the work that we're doing and how we can continue and sustain it. And if that mm. means mergers and acquisitions, that means uh, m- making a change to one's own life, I think that's really important. And yes, you're right. Trustees have to be courageous, as do boards in the commercial sector. Mm. They have to consider what is the most viable way of sustaining the organisation. Mm. And what, just before, final question from me, and, and I'll let you go, but what what do you do in your downtime when you're kicking back? Uh, well, we have a new puppy. That that's full, that's time consuming. It's wonderful. We like that. Uh, my grandchildren and children, are, um, th- those are my my and my husband are, are our relationships, and I think that uh, they always were. And at the stage of my life um, and the age that I have, I'm very fortunate to still be here. Um, and that uh, I'm very grateful for having had the life that I've had. And I'm very grateful each day when we wake up, because who knows, um, those are the important, the the relationships, the quality of the relationships, and the people that we love to have around us. I think that is something I'm grateful for every day. Mm. Benny, Benny, it's been a pleasure. Really enjoyed chatting. Thanks, Mark. listening to purposely podcast i hope you like what you're hearing please subscribe and leave a review